Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. I've interviewed many successful people over the years, and one thing I find fascinating is many of them don't consider themselves business savvy. Take the owners of Tight Knit Brewing. They turn to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards and do all of it in one place with the Chase mobile app. And that's helped these brew-loving friends turn a passion into a business. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. Smart journalism. Fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And how are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts. This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. Welcome to the show. Hey everyone. Since March, I have started most of these shows the same way. With a hope and a wish. I hope that you are staying safe, a wish for good health, as the numbers continue to rise across the country, especially here in Los Angeles and my hometown of Chicago. Those hopes and wishes feel a little insufficient. They feel like words. They feel almost hollow. I don't know how we got here. Well, maybe that's not entirely true. Maybe you and I both know how we arrived at this critical juncture. But to give 2020 any more oxygen or mental space feels like a defeat, doesn't it? Of course we know how we got here. Poor leadership, a pervasive distrust of our medical officials, a faction of people who believe it's their God-given right to live their life as if it has no bearing on anyone else's. We got here because COVID is not fatigued like we are. And with 292,447 Americans now dead, we continue to wonder, how do we keep moving forward? How do we keep moving forward when a number I read on a page on Friday night is going to be inaccurate by the time you are listening to this on Sunday? or Monday, or Tuesday, or whenever you listen. How do we keep moving forward? I come back to this question over and over again while sitting with Jenea Futurekan. 
Because at the heart of 2020, on top of the pandemic, is the fight for racial justice. From the killings of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor to the defund the police movement, much of the cultural dialogue has focused on race. The summer saw mass protesting in cities across the country and around the world. And at the forefront of these efforts was Jenea, a co-founder of Black Lives Matter Toronto and an international ambassador for the movement. They describe themselves as a black, queer, gender non-conforming activist, staunch Afrofuturist, boxer, social justice educator, and a program director for Color of Change, a nonprofit civil rights advocacy organization. But the question remains, how did they keep moving forward, especially over the summer and into the election, as the dialogue around defund the police turned toxic? How do you keep onward when you fear there may be no light at the end of the tunnel? I suspect in time, we will look back at 2020 as a transformative year, a year of awakening, of improvising, of re-examining, of asking better questions. And in that recollection, we will see the images of Jenea Future Khan and their colleagues shaking up the country, forcing us to put our principles into practice. And so, as we near the end of this year, I could think of no better person than Jenea to reflect on the past and look towards our future. I hope you enjoy. Jenea, I wanted to start. One, thank you for being here and doing this with me. It's my pleasure. I was curious. Have you been boxing lately? I want to answer you two ways, Sam. The first is yes, and the second is no. I have been boxing lately, but it's not the same when it's just me. I put a heavy bag in my backyard, the bag that used to start out my, you know, my circuit when I went to the club, and I realized that that stinky, sweaty, dirty, grime-filled boxing club that I went to five nights a week was made up such a huge part of my life. And it was honestly, for some days, my only actual like real socialization because I, (laughs) every day, because I, I do so much of my work from home. So I'm either in my house or I'm dealing with crisis or I'm at the boxing club and I'm just realizing the spiritual and psychological impact. So it's just not the same hitting a bag by myself. I brought that up because in regards to boxing, you've said when you box, all the shit comes up. Yes. If you rage, when you are confronted, it comes up. If you shut down, it comes up. If you weep, it comes up. And so even though you're boxing alone right now, what is coming up for you in this moment? Oh, Sam, we're just getting right into it. Yes, it's exactly why we're here, though. That's what we do. What is coming up? A feeling that I haven't felt in a really long time. You know, boxing is a kind of fighting, and I think I am fighting back this, at times, this feeling of powerlessness. I think our job is to look at the ugly in the world, in the face, 
and to see what's to be done about it. And so I've been listening and witnessing um, testimonials from ER doctors, testimonials that are telling us that there are people who are so committed to believing that COVID is a hoax that even as they lay dying, they are refusing to speak to their loved ones via FaceTime because even in their dying breaths, they're still insisting that it's a flu. And when you read something like that, when you witness something like that, it does something inside. I know that there's a place for anger and rage and all these things. And I just think, how do we get back from that? What is it that we can do while we're here on this planet to get back from that? When someone clings to a belief that strongly with everything that they've got, even as they lay dying, they have been betrayed or felt betrayed so many times leading up to that. I can't but try to see the humanity in that because it's very easy, I think, to, to take away that which has been taken from you at times. And I, I have to fight myself not to lapse into dehumanizing that person and saying, you know, pitying that person. Or No, I, th I think if this is what we've come to, what's to be done? And so I will get on my bag and as I'm, you know, I'll start out with my three rounds of jabs over and over and over again. And that repetition kind of pushes back that feeling of powerlessness, the same feeling that I think a lot of us have. Take that situation I just brought up. And then another one, Sam, the fact that 70 million people here in this country don't see racism as a deal breaker, don't see it as a problem, have dreams of and illusions of, of a gilded age that required people on their knees in subjugation. I feel a sense of that too when I think of my cousin who's in law school right now. You know, she was we were talking about this story. And in this particular story, a white woman was interviewing an elderly a white woman, an elder white woman. She was in her 80s, and she was at the forefront of desegregation efforts. At the forefront, Sam, um, back in the day. And so the interviewer was saying, well, how did that feel? Why did you feel like you needed to do this? And she said, well, it just felt like the right thing to do. I wanted my children to see that we should live in a freer world. I wanted my children to be surrounded by the right kinds of values. And then the interviewer says, and not some cloak and dagger thing, just truly was just like, so why didn't you send your children to a desegregated school? And she says, uh, and the interview goes on. And essentially, we learn that she did send her children to a desegregated school for a couple of days. And then she worried for their safety. And then she worried for the gap. She said, the gap, uh, we have to wait for these schools to catch up. You know, and I, I didn't feel secure that they had the right values at the desegregated school. And by the end of the interview, she's saying, well, I don't know, maybe, maybe I am a little racist. I don't know. And these three things, though they may seem disconnected, all have the same thread. They all have in it the same threat, which is what happens when we live in a society where the humanity of some where we choose who is worth saving, who is worth considering, who is worth care, who is worth compassion, and what's to be done. That's where I locate myself. And if you aren't careful, the thing in me, or the thing in all of us, perhaps, that tells us that we're not enough, that nothing we're ever going to do is enough, that nothing's ever going to change, those things come up in me as much as they do anyone else. And it's less about eliminating them. So I don't know if that's possible, but certainly it's about managing them, controlling them, living with them. So I don't actually want them eliminated. The reminder that this is a choice, that the fight 
it's a choice and there's power in that. There's agency in that. And I got to get on that bag and I got to remind myself that I have to choose something other than defeat every day. And that at times is a terrible feeling as much as it is a, a good one. Because then you got to figure out what you're going to do with what you know. That's all in the punching bag? Yes. Uh, Thank your title for making very good bags. Yes. But it is the the boxing and um, work of activism, although I don't see it as activism anymore. I see it as the work of being alive. Those two things are so intertwined with me because I found myself in the boxing club. I found community. It led me to activism. I was able to use what I learned in the boxing clubs to get me into conferences where they were talking about things I'd never heard of before. Things like the prison industrial complex and queer theory and intersectional feminism, new masculinities, all these things, class oppression. And I, I knew that they existed because, but it's, it's different um, to have this, to bear the scars, but have no language. And, and so they provided language for me. So these two things are so intrinsically linked. I want to stick on something you just said for a moment. You mentioned the COVID patients who believe they are dying from the flu. These are people denying the very existence of the pandemic, even as they spend their final days talking to their family through an iPad. And you pose this very simple question of, how do we get back from that? This struck me as an interesting idea, because it presupposes that what we could go back to is worth going back to. I'm curious whether you believe that, in part because of this quote you have. You say, To assimilate into a system that we didn't design is to forfeit a part of yourself. And I don't think that people really understand that that's the trade-off. You can't fully know who you are if you assimilate into a set of conditions that you didn't design. So, are you focused on going back or moving forward? I think it's, you know, if you're looking at um, Sankofa, I think it's really important here. I have a tattoo on my arm. It's the Sankofa bird. It's got its feet. So it's, there's a line where its feet are. Its body is facing forward, but it's looking back, tending to an egg. And that Sankofa bird, the feet are meant to be rooted in the present. The positioning of the body represents the present, and it's tending to the other generation, the egg, as it looks back on its back. And so I think that's it. I think we have to remember that. We live in this really ugly, limited colonial imagination. But I don't believe that the answer for us isn't staying there. And I don't believe that then we have to follow this very linear time frame. When I'm thinking about where we need to get back to, I think it is from an Afrofuturist perspective, which is to say, you know, this idea of future, which means we have to get back into ourselves. What I believe is there has to be a kind of spiritual revelation in order to get to the kind of systemic revolution that we require. I'm thinking of times before colonialism and and how recent that was. I'm thinking about different practices. You know, one of one of the books that I just finished reading, uh, Homegoing, it, it sort of traces this these timelines from the continent, you know, on the Gold Coast all the way to America through several generations, um, from slave trades, from enslaved Africans to slave traders. And you realize how recent all of this was, how recent the, in the attempted elimination of a, of a whole people are, people who right now 
First Nations people, Native people who are being ravaged by COVID. And as much as we, we, we talk about things like Indigenous sovereignty, is that the back that we're getting to? You know, is that the one? And the truth is, I don't necessarily have the answer. I just know to ask better questions. What I believe is that the way that we understand each other and the system in which we're assimilating into is a dangerous one. And our understanding, therefore, is a dangerous one. And it leads to a severing of self, a segregation of self. And, you know, we live in segregated societies. It leads to segregated thinking. And I think, well, what were the methods? What were the ideologies? How did we relate and see each other before this? And I get a glimpse into uh, Native traditions. I get a glimpse into continental and African traditions. I mean, here we are in the digital age. We have got to figure out what our new framework is going to be, what our new way of relating is going to be. We have to be like Bruce Lee. You know, he took the best parts for, for his interpretation of the best parts of certain martial arts practices and, you know, created Wing Chun. Like that's, that's what we have to be. We have to take the best parts of what we know with the technology that we have at this time. Because this is it. We're, I mean, we're seeing automation. We're seeing all these things. We're seeing our own biases being built into AI technologies, being built into algorithms, being built into facial recognition. We are literally replicating our limitations. Uh, we are replicating our biases. That means that we have to start studying other ways and models of being. So it's really a back into self towards a future that we deserve. Now that you mention it, I'm curious, where do you see our biases being embedded into modern technology? For example, on an Instagram, a Facebook, our Google searches. Yeah, I will tell you this, Sam. It's terrifying. So Google had a, a fight recently, even though they've tried to sort of suppress it, with Timnit um, Gebru, who is an ethics and AI expert from Ethiopia. She was hired after a research paper that she had done. She was hired by Google to develop an ethics team, which she did around their algorithm and sorry, specifically around their AI technologies, because that's where Google and Alphabet are throwing their money behind. Um, they believe the future is in AI technology. And I think in a lot of ways that is true. And they certainly have the power to make that future possible. And she had a, you know, uh, they had developed a pretty extensive paper MIT has a great breakdown of what this paper suggested. And it really talks about the ways that our biases are being replicated by AI technology. So for example, everything the computer knows, we teach it. So if we are building AI technology and you know, we're giving it all this information, what happens when the people who build it only look like you, Sam? What happens or have your specific experience, right? And I don't even know what that is. It's just the implications of a singular experience in a room full of people who have an experience that is just as singular as yours. It's horrifying. There's way too many divorces in my childhood. No one needs all that. <laughs> Precisely. And that, that's it. You build in all your limitations, all your traumas, and then the information that you're feeding it because it's the only thing that you know. So you're giving it that information and that's what it's learning and that's what it's, it's absorbing that. So now the people who are in the room have the same specific experience. The material that they are, that this AI technology is consuming is from people who've had that same experience, right? Because, you know, if I'm a person who only experienced, I don't know, let's say I grew up wealthy and that's all I knew. And all I read were books by billionaires. 
And let's say I'm a billionaire, right? Let's, let's, let's go with that, actually. I'm a billionaire. I put into this AI technology everything I know about billionaires and everything that billionaires have written. That's it. That AI technology is going to assume that that is the norm. And that is the benchmark through which all things, and then it's going to come up. Why do we build AI technologies? To harness it towards something, whether that is advertising, whether that is to be used by law enforcement or for national security purposes. It could be for predatory lending. It could be around employment and specific jobs, job opportunities that are geared towards specific zip codes or in this case, income. What happens when we literally have uh, technologies that are now predicting, right? We, we had this big fight around predictive policing. Sam, what was like, how many movies have told us that this is a terrifying thing where it's not the crime itself, it's the assumption of the crime in your mind? I mean, this is the crux of Minority Report. That's right. And so the, the reality is we are so limited as a people. I think that there's so much in us that is admirable. And I know that we're still those creatures that like crept out of the holes (laughs) in the ground, terrified of everything and still operating from that place in a lot of ways. So now with all of our limitations, we're building these things into our technologies. They have massive implications. We're seeing massive tech monopolies. We've got this AI in the story that we were using in the anecdote. We've got this AI technology that really believes that everyone is a billionaire and should be a billionaire. If they're not a billionaire, there's something wrong with them. They're not worth it. Let's say that AI technology feeds Amazon. It's information. So Amazon decides that people who have billions of dollars are the ones who get this access to these goods. But everyone else gets the third tier or the fourth tier. Maybe those prices are inflated. Maybe it's $150 for water right? Maybe now, as we're seeing the privatization of everything that's happening, because that's what we're seeing, it gets harder and harder for us to afford these things on our own. And then what happens, Sam? It's just the, because we're going into the ways of massive monopolies. We're going into the ways of um, the digitization and automation of entire industries. If there is not something outside of the benevolence of billionaires that we can rely on, we're in very, very big trouble. I'm not about philanthropy anymore. We need taxes. We need big, hefty taxes for people who have massive amounts of wealth, for people who have moderately massive amounts of wealth. I mean, we cannot take our foot off the gas here. And the problem is so much of this work is not reported on effectively. So much of left-leaning media is behind paywalls. So we've got to figure out some key information. We've got to figure out how to make sure that people know what it is that we need to be focusing on. And it's difficult because right now, what people are focusing on is the realest, most human thing, food, water, shelter. That's what we're focusing on now. Because what this pandemic has done is it is concretizing inequality in this country in a way that I don't know that we'll recover from in our lifetime unless real robust work is done. And even then, Sam, before this, before the pandemic hit, we were on track by 2055 for the median income, the median um, wealth for a black family in America. We were on track by 2055 for it to be zero. What is it going to be now? What about 
Spanish-speaking families uh, and la Latino and Latina and Latin families? What about them? What about indigenous families? Which, by the way, for all the things that we've been talking about, they've experienced all of this, so much of this already. So it's sitting at the crux of all these intersections and being really, I think, clear around what lanes need to be occupied by us, how to bring ethics back into our society, and how to fight what is rapidly becoming the new Washington, which is Silicon Valley. We had Rucker Bregman on about a month ago, and he speaks of this kind of tax system where in the absence of the benevolence of billionaires, which is the title of a really bad book. Um, <laughs> and, and it's also a fantasy. Yeah. In the absence of that generosity, that we have to enforce these higher taxes. This is something that I think you and I spend a lot of time batting around with our friends, with ourselves, reading about it behind those paywalls, which in and of itself is a privilege, not only to pay for that, but to have the time to think about that. Yeah. To someone listening right now, I could see them saying, wow, this feels insurmountable. How do you as a person in the world combat that feeling? I enjoyed Utopia for Realists. Here's what I want to say. What is pushing? Because I've been trying to figure it out. So I, was, I thought, what is it about right-wing recruitment that is so powerful? And at one point in my life, a great deal of time trying to figure that out. I mean, I love studying. Like I do a lot of self-directed reading, self-directed studying. It's just I'm obsessed with information. I did it for months. Do you want to know what I came away with? Nothing. <laughs> I realized what it was then that was the call. It was nihilism. There's something very nihilistic about their practices um, across the far right, as if nothing matters, a kind of nihilism. And if we're not careful, our response might be a kind of political nihilism. And I know because I've seen the left flirt with that already. What difference does it make? It doesn't matter. Nothing that we do matters. It's not enough. It's, and I want to say this. I've been thinking about monsters a lot. Maybe it's because I'm trying to get that new PS5 by the time God of War comes out again. <laughs> by, by, the, by the way, if someone was trying to predict what you were going to say next, yeah. after the first 25 minutes of this conversation, they would have to spend 100 years till they got PS5. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, oh my goodness. Oh my goodness, but what a good game. Honestly, that and Horizon Zero Dawn, like those games alone, like have so much to do with what we're talking about right now. I'm going to be honest, I have no clue what you're talking about. Oh my God, well, for the <laughs> listeners out there and for Sam, you know, it's time. It's time. I'm thinking maybe it's because these two games have been on my mind because I refuse. I have dignity, Sam. I'm not going to go to war with 12-year-olds to get this thing. I, I'm not, I won't. I'm like, when it becomes readily available to the masses, I will engage when it makes sense to do so. <laughs> but I've been thinking a lot about monsters and why we love them. And then I realized what it was. You need monsters because otherwise you could never have heroes and we need heroes. And what I've learned about these monsters, the, si the sheer size of them, they're always big. You ever notice that? They're always massive. We have to know that there's something, that bloated, corrupt body 
we see it, we know it's a monster. And there's always this singular eye. And I started to realize that that's really what we were finding. When you become that big and that powerful, your vision becomes impaired. For the, anyone who's feeling like this is insurmountable, and then you know, we can break the question down literally to like how to have conversations. <laughs> but the thing that motivates me actually is the, is the reminder that we too cannot fall into this sort of nihilistic singularity in our vision, this idea that there's only one way to do things. One of us is, you know, we're too small, we don't matter, we're not big enough. I want to say that there are two ways to approach that. Either it's true or it's not true. If it's true that we're too small to change anything on our own, then it means that we need people. And I think that's a beautiful thing, to need people, to have people around us, to trust people, to build with people, people who want to fight, who believe. And if the other thing is, we're too small to change things on our own, we, we don't have power. I think there are too many, too many case studies, too many examples, too many heroes that we have that tell us otherwise. I'm a big believer in strong people not strong leaders, like Ella Baker said. And I believe that the more of us were out there fighting, the better. But it, in our favorite stories, it was only ever a single individual that failed the giant, that failed the beast, that failed the cyclops. And I think we're past that point now. We have many, many titans. And it's going to take a lot of us to be in that fight. And we cannot lose ourselves having just believing that there's just one way of doing things. I believe that for those of us who are fighting this kind of really ugly patriotism, this kind of ruse, this mask, we have to have a stronger purpose. And that's what we need. You know, so when you are feeling like this beast is unbeatable, in this fight is insurmountable, I want to say that the moment that we begin to believe that's true, it is. That the moment that we accept it as true, it is. So the pushback that I want to tell you all is simply this. If you believe that thought, it's in your head. It's in your head. Where did it come from? Who put that there? Who told you that you weren't enough? How many times? We have been beaten down. We have been told to shrink. We've been told that we're nothing. Why? In our society, we're told we're worthless. We'd be thrown away. We're only as useful as what we can produce. And you hear those things enough. And you begin to think that it's true, which is why I say this work isn't about activism. It's about being alive. For anyone out there, as if we're laid in bed at night in the dark and you looked up at the ceiling and you thought to yourself, is this all there is? What you're really asking is, is this all that I am? And the moment that you're asking yourself that question, the answer is in it. No, there is so much more to you. The job of being alive is to figure out what that more is. And the only way that we can figure out what that more is, is to be in relationship to people and to be in relationship to purpose. Why people? Because there are parts in us. There are parts in us, perhaps, perhaps the most powerful parts that can only be channeled and accessed through other people. And yet there is purpose because if we don't have something that makes our heart beat, that puts air in our lungs and thunders our blood, then we are going to waver. We're going to wonder why we're here. We need purpose. We need something bigger than ourselves. We always have to feel like our lives have meaning because otherwise we suffer. Otherwise we just suffer. And I do believe that there is something about being alive that's about suffering, but it's sweet too. It's a sweet suffering because that too, that just that feeling inside of you, if you know great pain, and I know you do, you know, Sam, you alone in this conversation, you know, you mentioned divorce being a child growing up in that, everybody I know knows pain. 
But if you aren't using your pain, your pain is using you. We have got to get off these islands that isolate us. Because pain will make an island of you. You've got to start getting off those damn islands and finding each other and growing. Because the first rule that I had to make for myself in order to get off of this, my island, was to beware the narcissism of sorrow. If you're not using your pain, your pain is using you. So we have got to use the things that hurt us the most to heal us the most. Spiritual revelation, systemic revolution. You make it very difficult to follow anything you say with words of my own. (laughs) The line, is there more to me? Is there more in me? Is there more to myself? Mm -hmm. I get the sense that you started asking those questions at a young age. And it is my understanding that it was a woman named Elizabeth. Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. In my book, David and Goliath, I tried to figure out how some people find the strength to take on the established way of thinking and turn it upside down. What does it take to be a disruptor? And I concluded that a disruptor is someone with a rare combination of three traits. First, you have to be open. You have to be willing to see and do things in new ways. Secondly, you have to be conscientious, to follow through and make things happen. Those two are obvious, but the third one is the crucial one. You have to be willing to do what you think is right, even when everyone around you thinks you're an idiot. There isn't a brilliant innovator in history who wasn't surrounded by naysayers. Most of us can't take that kind of criticism and we fold, but the disruptor doesn't. They soldier on. I've been looking at disruptors and their success stories a lot lately, partly because I'm working on a follow-up to the tipping point, and market disruption plays a key role in how ideas take off, but also because I'm going to be the keynote speaker at this year's unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business. It's an event where customers are recognized for kicking convention to the curb to elevate their company, while also doing meaningful things for their community and even the world. In fact, I'll be presenting the first ever Tipping Point designation, a new special distinction honoring one entrant that sparked transformative change for their organization. If this event sounds like your thing, I encourage you to find out more or even enter the unconventional awards to be recognized for your disruptive thinking. Win a donation to a charity of your choice and much more. You can enter before July 31st at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. I'll save you a seat. I've interviewed many successful people over the years, and one thing I find fascinating is many of them don't consider themselves business savvy. Take the owners of Tight Knit Brewing. They turn to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards and do all of it in one place with the Chase mobile app. And that's helped these brew-loving friends turn a passion into a business. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase Mobile App is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. Smart journalism. Fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. 
Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And how are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts. Who perhaps incepted and opened that door early for you? It was around July that I knew Elizabeth. And my sister and I were going to start high school in September. And my sister, my mother, and I lived in our first women's shelter. And it was closing down. So it was just the three of us, whatever one lone staff member was working at that time, and Elizabeth. And my sister is my twin, and for lots of reasons, because life is complicated for siblings, and even more so for sisters, and even more so for twin sisters, because the comparisons will cut each of you down with a surgical precision your self-esteem. And so my sister, the minute she'd get away, started volunteering at the community center up the street just to get out of the shelter. And I didn't know how to do that, Sam. I didn't know how to be around other people. I didn't know how to just be in a space with strangers and to be okay. I was not someone who knew how to assimilate well. And my mom, you know, she was going through a lot of stuff on her own at that time and grappling with some of her own demons. And so she would you know, be gone for most of the day. I'd find myself sort of in relationship, in proximity to this tall woman, blonde, blue-eyed, bangs, ponytail, Coke bottle glasses, thick. <laughs> and she would tower, she would tower, but she never felt imposing the threatening. She said to me once, hey. <laughs> and from then we just started to spend time together in the day. And she would told me her life story. I told her some of mine. It didn't matter that she was this middle-aged woman who had sort of lived a whole life, you know, and, and I was sort of still on my third. <laughs> she was on her ninth. You know, she'd come in, as anyone in a, in a shelter has, has gone through something, and she had escaped a, this really abusive partner, and he had killed her cat, and she knew she had to get out. What she did, in her friendship, maybe she saw something, maybe she saw that I needed something, or maybe she just needed a friend too, whatever it was. She started to give me these little tasks. Can you go to the store for me? And she had that body pain. Her back would hurt her all the time. And just helping someone, being useful, having a job for someone, seeing the results. I mean, I'm 13. I've got nothing but a basketball under my arm, you know, at all times. I don't know how to make friends. I don't know how to have conversations. And suddenly there's this person in my life who's become a lifeline for me. And what she showed me was how much you could give somebody and not know it. She gave me so much. I don't think she knew how important her friendship was to me at that time. And, you know, it is the way of women's shelters. And this was before everybody had a cell phone and everything else. It's the way of shelters where people are there and then they're not. And just like that, the shelter closed down and my sister and my mother and I moved to another one. This one, very, very full of many, many women, which also was a very transformative experience for me. But I've, I've never forgotten Elizabeth. The way that just knowing that she would be there, it enabled me to, every morning I'd wake up and I have this, this feeling of clawing at my chest, this fear of waking up and not knowing what to do, not knowing what was going to happen at 13. And just knowing that she was there, I was just able to pry those claws off of my heart for a little while and get some air and get some room 
I'll never forget that. And it has, it fundamentally changed the way that I view people. People who you could argue on the surface, I'd have nothing in common with. So yeah, it, it planted a, a seed in me um, that I have been planting ever since. That feeling that you woke up with in the morning, mm-hmm. how much of that had to do with the fact that you and your family were constantly on the move growing up? I think a lot. You know, and I think when you're young, you have very little power around your circumstances, very little control over what happens to you and for you. Choices were moved. And I think that there is um, a way that you're forced to accept that when you're young. But that's supposed to change as you get older. And I think for so many of us, we have the illusion of choice, but there's no choice at all. So much of how, of how we access the world is informed by money and by where we live, by access to things that money can provide, by race, uh, you know, by ability. And I'll tell you that that feeling that I have, I've not, that I had, it's not something that has just has gone away with the years and with time. It's that I have a different story that I can tell myself too. I have a set of things that I am, um, that I, you know, it's, uh, I can't remember what song it comes from. Damn. But it's, uh, you know, I know too much and I owe too much. That's how I feel. And I have to, re- I remind myself when I get that clawing in my chest that I owe too much. I owe too much to stay here past five minutes. I'll feel badly for five minutes. I'll feel terribly for five minutes, although those in between us, I have a 48-hour cap. <laughs> like in, in pandemic, I've extended the time. <laughs> I've extended the time to 48 hours max. And then I'm like, you have to shower. Because I think, I think that the depths of our despair, our feelings of despair, the, the, the depths of it, they're just, that's just a glimpse of the heights that we, can, that we can reach. I think that if you can still feel, and I know it's painful, but if we can still feel, we can still do anything. It's when that numbness sets in. That's when we've got to fight for our lives because that numbness will just take over. And I do believe that complacency is the death of the soul. So even though it hurts to feel deeply, even though it hurts to feel all the things in the world, that feeling that nothing is possible, that feeling right on the other side of that means that everything is possible. Mm-hmm. The only time that possibility is removed is when we stop feeling at all. And so we have to fight to feel, which sounds really corny. I'll tell you this, like I woke up this morning and I thought, here we go. Another day of what horrible thing do we have to survive next? What is this administration going to do? How many more people are going to die today? And I thought, okay, get up, get up because your dog needs to go outside, get up because there are things that you owe to the world, to people, to yourself. So I got up. That's the thing. If we've been told we're not worth it our whole lives, that's a really hard narrative to fight directly. It's easier to fight for someone else. And you learn how to fight for yourself by fighting for someone else. Because my thing is, if whatever hasn't almost killed me didn't, I'm not going out now. Not without my boots on, you know, and I owe my mother something different. I owe my sister something different. And I owe all these people, all these people who took their, who risked their lives, who went out on the streets, who fought, you know, we're so connected. And uh, it's why being in that women's shelter was so transformative. It's why Elizabeth planted those seeds in me. We can do so much good 
in the world by doing so little. Evil requires performance. It has to be, Toni Morrison said that it had to be dressed up in a tuxedo. It has to look a certain way, act a certain way, wear a hood, have a sign, burn it. It has to have guns. Evil requires performance, it has to kill people. Evil requires performance. Goodness just requires purpose. Goodness doesn't require performance. It requires purpose. It requires being bound by something to something greater than yourself, to compassion, to care, to courage. I think about that last story, Sam, you know, we started out with that woman who said, I, I sent my kids, you know, even though I believed in desegregation, I sent my kids to the white school in a different district. I think about her because what that tells me, and this is the point where we're in right now, we believe things in principle, but not in practice. And if, that, if we only believe things in principle, it means that we're not actually concerned about other people at all. We're concerned about being seen as good people ourselves. Do you want to know something? When the civil rights legislation passed, Sam, everything in the black experience in America took a downturn. Before the civil rights legislation passed, high school completion was up. Life expectancy was going up. Income was going up. This is less provable, the voter turnout was going up. This is a research that was put together by a team of people who now have a book called The, up, the Upswing. Their research is very telling. Do you want to know what happened after the civil rights legislation passed? What happened was all of these, all these people, primarily white people, were, were like, yes, we're so about it. We're so about civil rights. Like, let's, let's get them to pass it. Then Johnson, because of the pressure, creates the Kerner Commission, right? They put out the Kerner Report that's informed so much of my work, certainly. And then when it came time to enforce this legislation, they did another couple national polls. And the majority of white people who had voted for the civil rights in favor of it, in favor of the legislation said, yes, but in moderation, not too fast. And then Johnson was like, you guys don't really care about this anymore. And disbanded the commission. And here we are with Black Lives Matter, our day, and lots of people supported it, even though it took eight years, six, seven, six, seven years to get there, right? For me, I'm like, what are, you know, it's all about opportunities. If this is the time, then this is the time. We've got to get to as many hearts as possible. We've got to change as many minds as possible. And you already see, you know, everyone was really excited and then not. Then Black Lives Matter puts forth policy initiatives like defund the police. And we don't like it. It's, it's, too, it's too much too fast. It's, we want it, but in moderation. And you see that, I mean, we're, it's like we're on a script and it's just recycling itself every generation. And so what I've learned is when we only care about something in principle, it's really about feeling good in ourselves, about feeling like we're good people. Because that's, that's, that's what matters to so many people. You want to believe that you're a good person and you want to believe that you're a good person so that your life so that you can look back on your life and say, I lived a good life. I was a good person. That matters to us. That's telling, right? That means there's something in us that knows what we're supposed to do while we're here. I was a good person, but there's a dissonance. We believe it in principle, but not in practice. So whether or not we're a good person is somehow disconnected from how we treat people in the world, how we fight for people in the world, how we show up for people in the world. That can't be. So part of my job, I believe, is to formulate, help to formulate that bridge, help to stop that corruption, that break that happens, which is why I think so much of the work 
they, you know, CLR, to quote CLR, James, you know, the revolution starts at home. And I think that home is in here. The self has to be just the vehicle to the spirit. The job is to be in service to others. That's where we are. We have to get the principles and the practice to meet up and to be wedded to each other the way that people married me and didn't know it. Anyone who said Black Lives Matter, I'm like, we're married now. Like, <laughs> we're married. You thought you were making a connection, you were making a commitment. We are now in this thing. And we're going to ride it till the wheels fall off. Thank you so much. <laughs> Let's try to keep the wheels on a little bit. <laughs> yes. You know, you've kind of brilliantly traced the civil rights movement to Black Lives Matter and then the ensuing pushback on desegregation and now defund the police. The pushback in each case primarily comes from white people. Not just white people, of course. There are many minority groups that were also against desegregation and are now against defund the police. But in regards to white people, you have said this endless study of whiteness and concepts like white fragility. I can't think of a more boring scholarship. Whiteness can never confront or change the reality of racial injustice by studying itself. It's not possible. <laughs> Sorry, just hearing myself back, I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> yes, though. Absolutely, yes. We're at the end of this year, and I think as we move forward into 2021, we are going to carry the events that happened in the past 10 months. And that's going to be defund the police and that's going to be George Floyd and that's going to be any number of terrible tragedies that took place during the pandemic. And I want to know, how do we get, and I don't just mean white people, how do we get people in opposition to this movement to at least better understand the movement? Not agree, but better understand. I believe that identity can and should be our entry point into movement. I started to fight for Black Lives Matter because I am Black. <laughs> that's, that's how that happened. But it's not why I continue to fight for it. Because otherwise, that would be the only thing that I fought for. I wouldn't have been at Standing Rock. I wouldn't have traveled out to Australia to meet with local Indigenous people who were fighting for justice over there. I want to say, I need white people to betray whiteness as a project. I need white people to understand what they're forfeiting when you sort of assimilate into a system. So my belief is that if we're only studying and reading about these things, if you and I, Sam, are like, we got to understand these whites. <laughs> like, we have to understand what they're saying, what they're doing. We've been studying that our whole lives, actually. And this is the thing that I want so many of us to know. I'm an expert on whiteness. Otherwise, I wouldn't be alive. That's what it requires of someone like me. What I need for white people to understand is that they've been fed a script their whole lives about what their lives should be like and how they should act and how they should feel. And you can't fully know who you are until you step off script. And in stepping off script, you will realize just how much is possible in you you realize things you never knew about yourself. I think about queer people too, regardless of their social location. Step off script and suddenly realize that there's an entirely new way to live. If and one that you have more self-direction on. And I'll quickly say this. There's a man that was on a plane once. Are you familiar with me with this story, Sam? 
you haven't started it yet. No, no, no. I mean, because I know, I know that you research your people. I don't think so. I have 3,000 words, but I don't have this. Okay. Brace yourself. Okay. Yes, brace yourself. This is going to be a good one. So I'm running through the Minneapolis airport catching a connecting flight. I'm so small, but, you know, I'm fast. So <laughs> off I go. Now, I'm a little bit more relaxed than usual because I have flown enough, regularly enough, that I am being spoiled. It is a first-class seat, and I am like, okay, great, because I get really weird about carry-on space. And I'm late for the flight, and I'm like, oh, my God, all the overhead space is going to be gone. But I'm thinking, no, because I'm in first class, so there's always room. And in first in the overhead space, but for everyone else who flies, we're just like, I need to get on this plane immediately. So I board the flight. Everybody's already boarded. It's safe to say everywhere where there's a bag, that's where they're supposed to be. Nothing's going to change. The, the overhead space above my seat is full. I look behind me and to the seat across from me and above, there's free space. I look, in, I look at the lap. I'm not paying attention. To, I look at the lap. There's nothing there. There's nothing I'm going to see. I'm like, great. I go to swing my bag up and at that moment, this older man pops up and he goes, do you belong here? I look at him and he looks at me and everything I know, everything I know is just like crashing into the front of my skull. You know, I'm like, what part of the last 400 years do I enter this conversation? On? Just the, the, the question, do you belong here? And everything it entails. And I realize something tells me that this conversation has to happen on a psychic level because I can't enter his game on his terms. Any answer is, is, is accepting his authority over me. So I look at him and he looks at me, I look at him and he looks at me, and then something happens in his eyes. And they widen and he, you know, he says, uh, uh, I, I, I meant there was an, a recognition. I, and he's sputtering and, you know, I just pick up my camera bag and I sort of reach around him and put it up there and I have a seat. When the flight lands, he's the first person up as soon as the bell dings, he grabs my bag and he hands it to me. Because he wants me to know that he's a good person. I've thought about that man countless times. I've turned it into a story that is useful for me and I think for other people. Because this is, this is the thing. He had been taught what America teaches so many people, which is not a sense of belonging based on who you are, but a belonging based on who you are not. And I thought about that. I thought about the fact that he wanted me to see that he was a good person, that he knew enough to recognize me as a person after a prompt, right? Hey, look, we have to think about Amy Cooper, the woman who stopped Christian Cooper and then called the police on him when he was bird watching this black man in New York. She called the police on him when he asked her to leash her dog. She knew exactly what to say. Sam, remember? She knew exactly what to say. She said, he threatened me. He assaulted me. He's a big black man. A black man did this though he had never done it. And if he wasn't recording, who knows what would have happened. But she knew exactly what to say in the way that we've seen countless testimonials of people, largely white people, confronting black people for doing simple things, walking down the street. If I had asked that man why he had stopped me in the first place, he would not have been able to answer me. This I know in the same way that I know that there was kindness there. There was still the ability to recognize me as a person. You see, if I had asked him why, it meant it would mean that he would have to acknowledge other things. He had already forfeited a part of who he was in order to assimilate into that system. What I mean is, if I am to remain within the limits of your imagination, remember, that's not really me. It's the idea of me. 
If I'm to remain in the limits of your imagination, you must stay there as the guard. You have to stay in the exact same place to make sure that the idea of me stays in the exact same place. But I'm not actually there, right? That person is trapped in a way that I may be in society, but I'm not trapped in my mind. And this is why this is so important. If the mind is the muscle of the soul, which is to say the closest thing to the grace of God we have within us, should such a thing exist, then the ability to think for oneself and to see each other as we are, not as we were told we are, that is the holiest thing that one can do. And the opposite, the most heinous. That, that is what I mean when I say we forfeit part of who we are. So for those folks out there who find themselves fighting against the defund the police, I'll say this, there's a way that we have to take on this fight. Because already there were immediately upon the Biden-Harris confirmation, there was, we've got to reach across the aisle, across the left. We've got to reach across the aisle, especially for moderates and liberals. We've got to reach across the aisle. And I thought, Sam, I thought to myself, how is it so much easier for you all to sit down with bigots than it is with black people who secured this victory for you? How is it so easy for you to see yourself more in a bigot than it is in me? There too, that means that too much corruption has taken place. And this is what I mean around identity being an entry point, but not an exit point. It's to be our values and our practices that bind us and unite us. We understood that as a movement. It's why originally most people in the movement for Black Lives, if not all of them, voted for either Warren or Sanders, understanding that their relationship to antitrust work and legislation, their understanding of, of race, their taxing the rich, their economic views, they were more in alignment than Harris or Booker was. So it's about values. And so what I want to say is this, we have got to look at where we are. Even if you wanted to reach across the aisle right now, you can't. Because what happens, Sam, when, think magnets, what happens when you put a positive and a positive together? They repel. We see ourselves as a positive because we are fighting for freedom, justice, and liberation. The problem is that fascism has become so normalized here, bigotry has become so normalized that there are people who also see it as a positive, so much so that they'll vote for it, so much so that they'll fight for it, so much so that they'll harass you know, people who are counting ballots. They see it as a positive. We have to make fascism unfashionable. That's actually our first job, is to make it unfashionable. We have to call it what it is. We have to rage against it. We have to ensure that the GOP that was willing to accept fascism, if it meant just a few more days of power, a corruption that you cannot come back from, an erosion of the constitution and the things that, that they, the, the traditions that they claim to want to protect, they were willing to throw all of those things away. If it meant keeping Trump in office, if it meant keeping power, we're watching them throw away again all these commitments that they've made in Georgia uh, around the runoff as the voter purging is happening, primarily in black and, and brown communities. So we have got to be clearer amongst ourselves about what we are and who we are. We are the political left. We are fighting the same fight. And it was not a coincidence that MLK Jr. and those contemporaries understood that moderates were our greatest threat. But my thing is this. If this is a positive and this is a positive, we've got freedom on one hand, we've got fascism on the other. That means that right in between, there's all this negative space. And who is that? It's all the people who don't yet know what they believe in. It's all the people who have been beaten down, but still haven't been called forth 
And the truth is, most of us in this world are just looking for something to believe in. And too often, it's whoever gets there first. And we're so busy trying to engage bigots that we are missing out on all of these millions of people who are still looking for something to believe in. So my thing is, ethics and political strategy, it does not make sense to reach out to the other side when they are diametrically opposed. Everything that we believe in, when they believe that I shouldn't exist, that I shouldn't love whomever I want, that children should, and should be locked up in cages if they don't have documents, and that families should be ripped apart. I don't believe in those things, and I won't accept those things. But we have to figure out how to win over more hearts and minds. We have to figure out how to get people's rent paid, how to make sure that children have gifts at Christmas. It made all the difference for me going to those rec centers and getting at least one or two things wrapped up, gave me something to look forward to as a child. You know, these really small things that keep people going. Then we can talk about how to reach across the aisle. But my challenge to moderates, to liberals, and to progressives is, are you sure it behooves the work of justice to reach out to bigots before we reach out to Black people, before we do the work of changing the conditions that Black people are saying must be changed? And right now, that, so much of that is around police brutality and the way there's this framing, oh, there's a war on police. This isn't about a war on police. It's about a war on poverty, right? Police aren't stopping crime. They're brutalizing people who are poor. So we have got to cut down some of those police budgets and put that money back into communities. That's what we've got to do. You said that the people in the middle, what it will come down to is who gets there first. Yes. Part of who gets there first is about clarity and simplicity of message. And this is where I'm concerned because the Trump mantra, the, the patriotism, mm -hmm. it is predominantly one note. It's a song with one instrument that goes on and on and on and has been here since the beginning of time. And in contrast, your message, which extends beyond Black Lives Matter, it's much more multifaceted. So do you ever worry your message is too complex for that political middle you're talking about? So here's the thing. You know, we can say for sure that the message box on the right is very clear. It is that we are the villains. Anyone who has darker skin, anyone who believes in something other than they believe, so that includes you, or anyone who believes in healthcare or free education is an enemy, an enemy to the people, an enemy to patriotism. And it's true. These things are very good. They rally people. They turn people into soldiers. You know, and even now they say, there's been critique of defund the police. They say it's too hard to understand. I believe it was recently referred to as a snappy slogan. Do you want to say who referred to it as that? Certainly. Uh, Obama referred to it as that. And I want to be clear about something. It's always best when you can appreciate the person who you would be debating. I want to win him over. Because here's the thing. How do we understand Medicare for all? How do we know what that means? What, how do we know what ends student debt or no Muslim ban or families belong together or me too? How do we know what any of them mean? Because it's said enough and they've been made prolific enough and there's been enough stories. So to be honest with you, when this happened, at first I was frustrated and I was like, damn hell, really? But then I realized that everyone was saying defund the police. 
everyone. And everyone was debating about it. And everyone was talking about it. Just like they were talking about Black Lives Matter. It wasn't all positive, sure. But nobody was talking positively about Black Lives Matter for seven years. And we spent those seven years doing the work that needed to get done, providing some answers to the questions that we had. And then when the pandemic hit, everybody had a lot of questions as social contracts were broken. Everyone had a lot of questions and we had some answers for them. I believe the same thing is true about defund. It is complicated because it feels new and it feels too big and it feels like we're trying to talk to too many people at once. I get it. I felt that way too at times. I really have. And I thought, God, they have it so easy. That's what I said about the right. I'm like, all they have to do is talk to one base of people. And it's true. It's true. They really only have to appeal to that. And it's very easy to make enemies of other people that way. We are fighting against the beast of bigotry that has existed since the founding of this country in so many ways. And there have always been people who are fighting it, always. And we've won. Nothing good has ever been given. It's been won. Yes, it took time, but slavery was abolished. I believe that we are saying defund the police. And Sam, maybe we should put this in our calendar 20 years from now. We should meet on this day. And I would love for us to talk about what's changed, because I promise you, police budgets will be slashed. I promise you. I promise you because it's one of, it's, it is an inevitable answer for what communities need right now. I promise you that it will happen because there will always be me to push for it. There will always be people like me. There will always be people like you. And even if it's taken longer than we hoped, we have won. We have won. So we have to keep writing. We have to keep chanting. We have to keep yelling. We have to keep praying. We have to keep declaring. We have to keep demanding. We have to keep fighting. I want this to be a challenge because it means that I get to choose it every day. And I believe that people's lives, the lives of George, Natasiana, Brianna, they deserved it. And I don't want another one to happen. I appreciate Obama, but I'll tell you this, my a little cheekiness, I'm gonna trust the experts on this one. I have someone who I think we agree is an expert on this fight, the late John Lewis. And as we close, I wondered if you would read from your tribute to him from this past summer. I can. Congressman John Lewis had a heart that never faltered and a moral authority that never failed. He was the last surviving speaker at the historic March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom in 1963 and never stopped using his voice to call for change and hope, rising to the highest offices in the land with the full belief of the people. He was not just a representative for his constituents. He was a representative of the best parts of humanity. Mr. Lewis is a beacon for us all. When we were in the streets for George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, John Lewis said, it was very moving, very moving to see hundreds of thousands of people from all over America and around the world take to the streets to speak up, to speak out, to get into what I call good trouble. And that is what we must continue to bring forth good trouble. Some inherit wealth in this country, others inherit struggle. And with that struggle comes a tradition of resistance and power and love from the titans of our times. Mr. Lewis is that titan. This work is hard work, but it is always worth it. Thank you, Congressman. We carry the torch for you now, the way you have done for us for so long. 
peace and passing to a great man. We will carry the torch. My question to you as we leave, are you prepared to keep carrying that torch? Oh, Sam, I don't know how to live without that warmth. I don't know how to live without that fire. I carry that torch and very quickly, my hand became a part of it. And then my arm, then my shoulder, then my back. It's all over me and I'm all over it. And when I pass that torch on, when we put our hands together, we become a part of that too. We become a part of each other and we just, we carry it. We carry it. When you feel the warmth, that heat, when you get that kind of light in your life, do you want to be the fruit that withers away in the darkness? Or do you want to be the fruit that turns its face to the sun? Janae, Future Khan, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. our show special thanks this week to daniel jackson and court barrett i'd also like to give a special thanks to Janea future khan to learn more about their invaluable work visit talkeasypod.com if you're new to the show and want more conversations like this one i'd recommend episodes with resma manakam noam chomsky roxanne gay janelle monet elizabeth gilbert and claudia rankin You can listen and subscribe on Spotify, Apple, Google, Stitcher, Amazon, wherever you do your listening. And if you like what we're doing, share the show with a friend. Give us a review on iTunes. Whatever you do, it really does help us continue making this show week after week. So thank you in advance. To join our mailing list, drop us a line at talkeasypod at gmail.com. Our vinyl record with Fran Leibowitz is now on sale. If you'd like to take a look, visit talkeasypod.com slash vinyl. As always, this show would not be possible without our incredible team. Our executive producer is Janixa Bravo. Illustrations by Krisha Shenoy. Our associate producer is Nikki Spina. Our lead editor is Andre Lin. Our assistant editors are Joshua Siegel, Kevin Kaur, and David Harding. Music by Dylan Peck. Marketing by Patrice Lee. Booking by Jules Rector. Our interns are Grace Perkins, Claire Hardwick, and Ian Simmons. Graphics by Derek Gaberzak and Ethan Seneca. And the show is produced by Caroline Reebok. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. We'll be back next week with our annual holiday episode. Until then, stay safe and so on. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators 
whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you, and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored among some of the most influential leaders in industry, and me, I'll be there too. Enter now at T-Mobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Smart journalism, fascinating topics, words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And how are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts.